Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how was Patrick Quirk found guilty of murder? Now, true crime documentaries are on everybody's recommended lists on Netflix, and there's kind of a race to make movies about every single famous killer at the moment. Um, But what I think catches people's attention a lot more is when it happens on their own doorstep. There can be something a little bit crass about talking about murder in a way that people... I don't know if this is the right word, but find entertaining. Um, But I think there's also a benefit to discussing how policing is done and how justice is found in this country. And so that's what we'll be doing here today with my guests, Barrister at Law, Mark Murphy. Thank you. And our reporter, Gráinne Nia, is also back. You'll remember Gráinne from our Brexit briefings, so this is a little bit different. And I'm just going to run through some background first of the case before I get to you two. Um, on the 1st of May, after the longest murder trial in the history of the state, Patrick Quirk was found guilty of murdering Bobby Ryan in Tipperary in June 2011. Bobby Ryan had gone missing on the 3rd of June of that year and his body wasn't found until 22 months later in an underground runoff tank on a farm owned by a woman called Mary Lowry. Patrick Quirk, who is now 50 years old, was charged with his murder and went on trial this year. So in that trial, there was 13 weeks of evidence, which really is something, because when you think about it, that's 13 weeks of front pages and really getting into the public psyche. Now, it became known as the Love Rival trial and also the Love Triangle trial and the Mr. Moonlight trial. They were all words used in court. Eventually, a jury of 12 found Patrick Kirk guilty by a majority verdict. And it's the presence of some of those really interesting legal outcomes that we'll be focusing on today. Um, but first, Grania, one of the elements, I think, to this uh, that people were particularly intrigued by were the people at the centre of it. So can you run through, um, for want of a better phrase, the, the family tree? Uh, Yeah, and because the trial has been going on for so long, people might be coming in at the end or might have followed at the start. And then because it went for so long, it zoned out. So very quickly, Patrick Quirk, who was found guilty, is a 50 year old farmer from Breenshamore in County Tipperary. And his victim was Bobby Ryan, a truck driver for a quarry and a part time DJ known as Mr. Moonlight, which is where the Mr. Moonlight uh, headlines came from. Now, the woman that links these two men is is Mary Lowry. She's a 52-year-old widow who was leasing her land to Quirk and who was going out with Bobby Ryan when he went missing. Um, Mary Lowry had an affair with Quirk as well. And after that affair ended, she started going out with Bobby Ryan, uh, which is where the love rivals. So the affair was came. because Quirk, Quirk was, was married. Quirk was married, of course. The three other people who we've heard from since the trial ended a lot more is Robert Ryan Jr. and Michelle Ryan, the children of Bobby Ryan. And they've been giving kind of very heartfelt statements, um, painting a picture of who their father was and how they miss them and how their lives have changed utterly because of this trial and how difficult it was. A lot of the evidence was quite about the state Bobby Bobby Ryan's body was found was quite um, upsetting, to say the least. And then Mel de Quirk as well, who is Patrick Quirk's wife, um, who is another figure that I think is kind of easily forgotten in all the fuss and drama and uh, deliberations and evidence. Her brother Martin was married to Mary Lowry. So Patrick Quirk and Mary Lowry kind of related through marriage their kind of brother-in-law and sister-in-law. Again, another detail that was big at the start of the trial was kind of lost as as the case went on. So Imelda Quirk's brother Martin died in 2007. In 2012, her and Patrick Quirk's son Alan died uh, in a tragic accident. And now her husband has been found guilty in one of the most prolific trials in the history of the state. So she's, I think it's important that uh, remember those kind of three figures who've 
dealt been dealt a lot of tragedy in a short mm. space of time. Two other people who aren't kind of central to the case but were interesting witnesses were Breda O'Dwyer, an artificial insemination technician. Um, Patrick Quirk was a cattle farmer and a key witness for his alibi the morning Bobby Ryan went missing. And then another uh, key witness was Dr. John Manlove, a forensic entomologist or an insect expert who gave evidence in relation to when the slurry tank could have been opened, what might have been opened earlier than when Bobby Ryan's body was found. So that was on the 3rd of June 2011. So we know that's when his body was found. Um, It was obviously 22 months um, since he had gone missing. Do we know exactly what happened to Bobby Ryan? Some things we know and some things we don't know. Uh, What we do know is Bobby Ryan went missing on the 3rd of June 2011 after leaving Mary Larry's house in the early morning. His alarm went off at half six because Mary Larry wanted him to get up before her sons got up. Bobby Ryan left for work but never made it there and Michelle Ryan called Mary Larry and said have you seen uh, daddy he hasn't shown up for work which would have been unusual and this is where the search for Bobby Ryan started. Mary Lowry and Michelle Ryan later found Bobby Ryan's van at Banshaw Woods uh, where it was parked with all his DJ equipment and Michelle said afterwards that it was left in gear which would have been unusual for her father to leave it in gear and so her take on it is that he wasn't the last person to drive it. On the 30th of April 2013 then, 22 months after Bobby Ryan went missing, Patrick Quirk found his body in an old slurry pit on Mary Larry's land. So he called his wife and then the Gardaí were called. His body was badly decomposed. It was naked. There was injuries to his head and later a forensic examination would uh, a pathologist said that his death was caused by blood force trauma to the head or some sort of traffic collision or something. They can't even tell how he died exactly. They can't be sure because the body had been decomposing for two years. Um, So we know he went missing, but we're not really sure what happened after that. There was no blood on the land that Mary Larry owned or anything that would hint as to where he was between leaving Mary Larry's house and being found almost 22 months later in a disused slurry pit in on a, her land. In a decomposed state. So the Gardaí at this point have a decomposed body, um, very little detail about the death, very little detail about where that death may have taken place. Um, so how do we get to a point then that there is a case built up against mm-hmm. Patrick Quirk? Well, they followed a couple of leads in the intervening years. Um, you know, they searched Mary Larry's land. Uh, Patrick Quirk didn't tell them about the old slurry pit, so that wasn't searched But all the others were. There was kind of reports about uh, water diviners and evidence being used and that Patrick or that Bobby Ryan's children wanted that lead to be followed up. But there were so many bits of evidence or bits of hints or tip offs that the Gardaí got. Uh, that they followed down through the years, but to no avail. So Mary Larry had given Patrick Quirk a seven year lease uh, for her land when her husband died because her husband had been a farmer and she didn't really know what to do with all this land. So Patrick Quirk said he would help out. And that lease was coming to an end. She actually ended it a bit early. Um, So Patrick Quirk was clearing out the land. Um, He was taking, he was emptying the slurry pit when Bobby Ryan's 
body was found. And that's kind of how it, it came about, that his body was discovered. If that lease had rolled on, I, I wonder if it was, would have been found at all, if that slurry pit would have continued to be disused and we wouldn't be here now. Um, so another thing that happened were, were, you know, missing posters were put up of Bobby Ryan around the area. Mary Larry actually complained about them being put around her land because she said she felt that it hinted she had something to do with his death. Um, and had complained about it to Garthi, which was another bit of evidence that we heard. But basically there were there were rumours, um, but there was no kind of, um, no case was built until the body was found and then it all kind of came to the fore again. So the case that was brought against Patrick Quirk was based on bits of what witnesses had seen the morning Bobby Ryan went missing, bits of his behaviour after the affair with Mary Larry ended, and then bits of bizarre behaviour maybe that they said is this just bizarre or does it hint at some sort of um, sense of guilt or some sort of plan to commit uh, murder. So what was the evidence that the jury did hear then over those 13 weeks? When we're talking about a murder you think about alibi, you think about intent, you think about motive Um so that starts with the motive, which was that Patrick Quirk's affair with Mary Larry had ended and he wasn't happy about it. Um, another bit of evidence was that he had been captured on CCTV on Mary Larry's land, going around when he wasn't invited, I think, as Mary Larry put it, um, and taking her underwear off the line. And he wasn't aware that the CCTV was was filming him. And then his GP also said that... Uh, Patrick Quirk had told him that he was upset after the affair ended. So there was this kind of level of kind of maybe unusual behaviour. Another thing that happened in the trial was that Patrick Quirk reported Mary Larry to Tusla in a way. He said he was worried about uh, how this new relationship with Bobby Ryan was affecting her ability to be a parent. That was another kind of level. Is that normal behaviour and does that hint at what could be some sort of motive later on? Um, So when we talk about the alibi then, the morning Bobby Ryan went missing, um, his alarm went off at half six and he left shortly after that. At quarter past six, Patrick Quirk would have been milking the cows. But the key witness that I mentioned earlier on, uh, Brito Dwyer, said that when she arrived at 9.30 that he was still milking the cows. She said that was unusual for her or for her to arrive at that time and for him to be still doing that. Usually um, cows are milked kind of <laughs> at the crack of dawn. So she said that was kind of unusual. So that was a key bit of evidence. And then Mary Larry also had given evidence earlier in the trial where she said she'd seen Patrick Quirk on her land that morning and he'd seemed hot and bothered, um, like he'd seemed unusual himself. So they're kind of two bits of evidence that maybe hint that Patrick Quirk was out of his routine on the morning that Bobby Ryan went missing. Um, and then... I think another interesting thing is, you know, intent. Patrick Quirk was found guilty of murder, not manslaughter or a killing kind of thing. It's, it's like there's a serious intent to that. And that might have been helped by um, Google searches that were found on a computer in his home where body decomposition timeline was found searched and a number of uh, websites were searched. And then a half hour later after these searches, Patrick Quirk sent an email um, to someone. So it's kind of there's a strong indication there that he was searching this in December 2012, four months before Bobby Ryan's body was found. And when Mary Larry was telling him that she would cut the lease short, basically. Um, So they're all the major 
parts of evidence that were heard in the trial. And then the jury went out and they actually did deliberate for quite a long time. Yeah, because remember, they're deciding on is there reasonable doubt that all of this is coincidence or is the reasonable doubt that these are the only bits of evidence we have in a murder and if someone is found guilty how much evidence they have to leave behind as well for us to kind of get to a point where we say or for a human being or 12 human beings to get to a point where they say well this is actually planned this is this is far beyond reasonable but that all of this is circumstantial that's the kind of decision that the jury had to make in this case and you know when we're talking about circumstantial evidence or direct evidence like from witnesses say or forensic evidence uh, which could fall into either of those two it's the quality of the evidence at the end of the day whether categorizing it or not it's like what is the evidence that is before the jury everything's case by case and in this case there seemed to be enough evidence from different witnesses and um, circumstantial evidence or not, it kind of told a story that made sense to the jury. So at least 10 of the jury, because it was a majority verdict, yeah. 10 to 2. Um, Mark, I know you can't, obviously because of your job, speak to the specifics of, of this case, but I think it brings up enough, as I said earlier, legal outcomes and, and legal kind of in, interesting bits. Um, that idea, I think, uh, kind of the talk in pubs and, the, you know, the talk about this was there's so much circumstantial evidence yeah. um, that it's hard to to build a case without reasonable doubt. But is circumstantial evidence as useful as any other kind of evidence in in cases? Yes, well, circumstantial evidence is evidence like any other type of evidence. Um, I suppose what was unusual about this case was that such a high-profile and complicated murder trial was run exclusively on circumstantial evidence. But in terms of prosecuting other serious offences, be it a robbery, be it a sexual offence, be it a a theft, be it a financial offence... there would very often be large amounts of circumstantial evidence. And, and what, falls into the ga- what falls into that category? Well, there are two types of, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to give your, your listeners a, a law lecture, but there are two types of evidence. There's what's called direct evidence and there's what's called circumstantial evidence. So direct evidence is something I think it's very simple to understand. It tends to be, um, if, for example, I was giving evidence and I say, I saw Sinead hit Grania. I saw that myself. I am giving that evidence of my knowledge and my uh, Damn, witnessing. I thought I was on my own. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's direct evidence. So that tends to be from live witnesses. Um, everything else falls into the category of, I suppose, indirect evidence or circumstantial evidence. So to answer your question, examples of circumstantial evidence could be forensic evidence, could be DNA, fingerprints, bloodstains, that type of thing. It could be, uh, to use the examples that Grania was giving there, the, there was the evidence in, in, in this, the, the Quirk trial of uh, Bobby Ryan's car being found, being left in gear. Uh, one of the witnesses stated that that would be unusual, that wasn't the way that Bobby Ryan drove his car or parked his car that's circumstantial evidence and some circumstantial evidence can be deemed to be very strong by a jury considering a case and some can be deemed to be quite weak Um, but it's a question of putting it all together to see if a a picture emerges. Yeah one of the other things that we get after a trial is more of the picture so we get um, stuff that can be reported afterwards that the jury doesn't hear so the prejudicial evidence and there was a lot of that in this trial Grania. Yeah, one of the things uh, that one one of the jobs the defence has is by saying that piece of evidence shouldn't be allowed because it doesn't actually prove anything massively to the trial. And it's actually uh, hint, pushes them in one way that isn't kind of fair. So I suppose the, the thing is, it's like the, the benefits 
or the, the, the hard impartial evidence don't outweigh the, the kind of negatives. And one of those things was like there were searches on that we were talking about Google searches earlier on on the computer found in Quirk's home. Another search term that wasn't allowed, even though the body decomposing searches were allowed, the searches for Joe O'Reilly, uh, an, another notorious murder murderer in um, in Ireland, those weren't allowed because they said, you know, people's kind of search uh, notorious killers in Ireland. It doesn't really hint that Patrick Quirk did anything because he searched for that. So and it kind of would hint to the it would possibly sway the jury one way. Is there an obvious line for prejudicial evidence, Mark, or is it a grey area? Uh, well, yes and no. Um, what happens in any given case is the judge has to balance when assessing the admissibility of evidence. The judge has to balance its probative value versus its prejudicial value. So does a piece of evidence tend to prove a fact that will advance the prosecution case or is it simply an attempt to, I suppose, slander uh, the accused? So in general, a defendant's character is never on trial. Uh, save in limited circumstances where the defendant puts his or her own character at Mm. issue. So uh, trials are not about is Mr. X or Miss X a bad person. It's about whether they have done a particular thing. Um, So the judge will always balance prejudicial. The test will be a balance of whether something is more prejudicial or more probative. If it is more prejudicial, it will, by and large, be excluded from the trial. If you're arguing for something's probative value, is there a disappointment then if you don't get it in, if you feel like this piece of evidence is actually incredibly important for you? Is there a disappointment? I don't know if disappointment is the word, but, you know, Every barrister thinks that their own case is the correct one. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's that's just part of the human condition. It will often be the case that the guards may have um, discovered something in the course of their investigation or a witness may have told uh, the guards something during the investigation. What's called a book of evidence is put together, which is effectively the state case against an accused. And a prosecution barrister, when considering that, will go through it and may spot certain pieces of evidence that, the prosecution know will not be admitted by a judge for whatever reason, and they don't bother trying to lead it. But if I, I so I don't think there's anything disingenuous about it. I, I, I think if the prosecution try and uh, adduce a piece of evidence before the court, I think they do so because they believe it should go into the case. It's not a question of simply mudslinging. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the defence obviously will have a view on, on whether something should be challenged or not. Were there any other pieces of prejudicial evidence that you felt were important after the fact to report, Gronia? I think that the entire body of evidence is interesting. I don't think that actually anything that was said in court in front of the jury was any less interesting than what wasn't. Uh, there was there's so many interesting details to the case, you know, one of which was when the Gardaí first searched for Bobby Ryan, they did search Mary Lowry's land, uh, but they didn't search and they searched slurry pits, but they didn't slur- search this slurry pit. Uh, Patrick Quirk didn't tell them about it. There was so many things like um, the at the very start of the trial, the detail that kind of caught my attention when it first started was the trips away that Patrick Quirk and Mary Lowry went on and how vague Mary Lowry was and the detail of it that kind of the, they had to prove that, you know, you stayed in this hotel in Waterford and she said like she couldn't remember uh, staying there and that they produced her bank statements where it says, well, you've paid for it. And she said, well, Patrick Quirk had access to my home and my computer. So I still, you know, I still don't remember it. It has this beautiful seaside view. Do you not remember it? And she says, no, those kind of 
interesting bits of detail. They're very human. I, was, yeah. I think they're very kind of like you think about someone's day to day life. And this was said in a lot of the papers afterwards, after the, the verdict came in, that how much scrutiny these people's lives went through is just incredible, probably because they were relying. There wasn't a smoking gun or there wasn't a lot of forensic evidence. So they had to go into such minute detail of personal relationships to kind of hint at a motive of um, all these different figures to kind of construct a story and and a, and a narrative. And uh, I think maybe that's a, a key point as well. I don't think we would have seen a lot of this if there was more a witness that saw Bobby Ryan, Patrick Quirk walk to the slurry tank together or whatever it happened uh, we wouldn't have seen the amount of detail we did. Yeah, and probably speaks to how long the jury deliberated for as well, the the over 20 hours, and that they asked, could they have a majority verdict rather than a unanimous one? And Mark, can you just explain, you can give us a law lecture on this, <laughs> uh, on the difference between a unanimous and a majority verdict. Okay, well, as I think most people know, juries are made up of 12 people. They can be male or female, and they're drawn at random from the electoral, oh, people who are over 18 and from the electoral register. So once a jury of 12 people is, is drawn, they hear the case they hear the evidence and then they're sent off to deliberate by the judge. Now, the judge in any criminal trial will ask them for a verdict upon the, the phrase is upon which you are all agreed. OK, so to use sporting uh, parlance, it's a 12 nil verdict mm. one way or another, 12 nil to convict or 12 nil to find not guilty. Now, from time to time, a jury can't reach uh, a unanimous verdict and, and you don't know how close they are. So they don't come back. Yeah, it's not well, like, it's, you know, just we're one seven five or there's, yeah. you know, there's one fellow who just won't, you know, change or anything. Well, you're not told that you're simply just told that they cannot reach a unanimous verdict. And a judge then uh, can use his or her discretion to accept what's called a majority verdict. Now, a majority verdict is a verdict upon which at least 10 are agreed. So it can be 11-1 or 12-2. Again, 11-1 or 12-2 to convict or to find not guilty. It cannot go below 10. So if, for example, it transpires that a jury uh, was 9-3, whether to convict or not, uh, or to find not guilty, that will be what's called a, a disagreement or in, in, as the Americans call it, a hung, hung jury. So how common is it that the judge will use their discretion and say, OK, a majority verdict is OK? It's, it's fairly common. I've given up predicting what juries are going to do. Sometimes, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're running trials or you're watching trials and you're thinking, God, it's obvious, you know, and it, it rarely is because you have a blinkered view of the case if you're involved in it. But um, it's fairly often that they that they uh, that judges will say that they will accept a majority verdict. I don't know what the percentage is, but it it is fairly common. And I guess one of the other parts of this that we've focused on a lot is the volume of what's called circumstantial evidence. Is it quite common that trials will be exclusively run on circumstantial evidence, or is there usually something else, direct evidence, or that smoking gun? I, I wouldn't say. I would say, based on my experience, and again, I don't have statistics on this, but I would say in most cases there would be some direct evidence and then there would be circumstantial evidence to kind of pad the state case, if I can put it that way, or to, or to explain things to a jury. And what was unusual about this case is that, firstly, it was a murder trial, so the most serious offence mm. um, known to law in, in this country, um, but that it was run exclusively on circumstantial evidence. And so it was unusual that, firstly, it was a murder case run on circumstantial evidence, but also Within that, it was a particularly complicated case because, as Gronia has given a very good summation of the case, there were a lot of moving parts, if I can put it that way. There's a lot of background, there's a lot of backstory, there's a lot of, you know, characters, you know, um, who everybody is, what their relationship is. So I suppose it was 
unusual that that such a serious and complicated case not not only was run, but that a conviction was achieved uh, on circumstantial evidence. Will there be lessons taken from it for like, will our prosecutors now looking at it and thinking like this is something that we can learn from or this is something that has changed the needle a bit for what we can do? I don't know. Um, you kind of have to wait for the dust to settle a little bit because I think the verdict, I think, came on the 1st of May, yeah. I think. So it's still fairly new and the law is not a, an institution that's known to move with uh, <laughs> with great pace. It's not, uh, there have been other high profile cases decided uh, exclusively on circumstantial evidence. Um, so it's not a, it's not unusual. It, well, it's unusual, but it's not uh, a trailblazer in that respect. In terms of legal principles, Probably not. This is a case that, for obvious reasons, caught the uh, the public attention. Um, again, I, I don't want to go into specifics of it, but there was a lot of human interest in this mm. case, if I can put it that way. Um, and obviously, journalists and the, the media and also the general public were very interested in it. How interesting it was on a purely legal basis, probably not that unusual. I think most of the things that were done in this case had been done previously in other cases, albeit not under the the glare uh, of the the national media and with everybody buying their newspapers and listening to journal podcasts <laughs> to, to hear all of it. And the longevity, I guess, is the one thing. That the longevity was unusual. I think it's the longest um, murder trial, I think, in the history of the mm. state. Um, that is unusual. But again, that's a reflection of the complexity uh, of the evidence, the volume of evidence, the fact that because it was all circumstantial, a lot of that evidence would have to be explained or certainly given context so that the jury can understand it. Um, and it was a case that was very meticulously put together uh, by Angarda Siakona, by the uh, prosecution solicitors and ultimately by the prosecution counsel who ran the case. Yeah, and ultimately Patrick Kirk uh, Grania got convicted and there's a mandatory life sentence when it's murder. So he has already began that. Yeah, um, and... I think there is a strong indications that there will be an appeal uh, to that kind of th- that verdict, um, which I suppose is, ex- is expected. Uh, but again, like I think about uh, Bobby Ryan's children, Robert Ryan and, and Michelle Ryan, who said who gave very moving statements about their father and very uh, moving impact statements as well when the trial or during the trial. And then Imelda Quirk as well, who's seen so much tragedy in such a short amount of years. Um, so it. It's hasn't. Ch- it's changed. I'd imagine we're talking about this on a national scale. Can you imagine what's going on in, in Tipperary um, and that locale? Bobby or Robert Ryan Jr. and Michelle Ryan have moved out of the county. Uh, Mary Lowry, I don't think, is living on that land anymore. She's moved uh, near to I think her brother or a family relation anyway. Uh, so definitely, whether it hasn't changed the legal profession, it's definitely had a profound effect on all these people and their their families locally forever. Thanks so much for explaining all that to us. Thanks, Rania. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. This episode was brought to you, as always, by our excellent team, executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry, and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. Thanks to our guests today, Gronian EA and Mark Murphy. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and we'll be back next week with a brand new topic. In the meantime, check out some of our other episodes. Last week, we looked at the possibility of Ireland growing its own medicinal cannabis, and some segues into Home and Away there as well. There are also explainers on John Delaney, measles, and of course, Brexit. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you and catch you next time.